Colleagues, Anthony McKay, President and CEO of the National Centre on Education and the Economy, welcoming you to Global Ed Talks, and Linda Darling-Hammond, uh, a very, very warm welcome to you. Great to be here. Well, it's wonderful to have you. And we asked if in this particular conversation, we could focus on what it might take to reform our education system for the public good in the public interest. Not a small question, but Linda, just before I ask you how we might tackle that, let me just say that uh, you bring to this conversation uh, a remarkable uh, experience and expertise in all matters education. And you are in a remarkable place at this moment. Perhaps you've always been, but um, people know you as researcher, as scholar, as professor at Stanford, but they also know you, of course, as a person who has made an incredible contribution to both state and nation and internationally. Uh, at the moment, uh, California State Board of Education president. And of course, uh, you've just come off what's been an incredibly intense period as heading up uh, the Biden administration's education transition team, having done that previously for the Obama administration. And of course, with your own policy uh, institute that is making a fantastic contribution uh, to the evidence base that we need in order to know about how to go about the shift of our learning system to be in the interest of all young people. And I feel like everybody knows that every conversation right now is in that kind of uh, pandemic, post-pandemic moment where we are so committed to ways in which we can build social cohesion, economic prosperity, individual and collective well-being. That's the context I feel like we are all in. I guess you are absolutely in that space. And I guess therefore my opening question is, well, if we want the common good, what is it? If we want a learning system <laughs> yeah. to contribute to the common good, let's start with what the common good might look like. Yeah. Well, you know, it's after these big disruptions in our you know, global history that we have the opportunity to make these kinds of major changes and where people cohere and you know, come together again, at least for a moment in time, we're in one of those moments. Um, you know, when you think about the common good, as I was uh, contemplating that question, I was reminded of John Dewey's conversation about how the words common community and communication come from a common root. They have to do with uh, what do we have in common uh, that allows us to be a community? What are the hopes, aspirations, common understandings uh, and goals that we have? Uh, and then how do we communicate those with one another? Uh, and to create a common uh, public education system, you do have to have uh, those uh, opportunities to communicate with each other. Uh, I think that that means that we have to kind of reinvent the common school, bring people together across lines of race and class and uh, you know, a variety of other divides to be together in communication, seeing one another in common. Uh, and then of course, you know, activating the uh, policies that are needed to create an equitable educational uh, experience and opportunity. Uh, and to do that right now around what I think of as empowering education, that is the kind of education that will allow young people to survive and succeed and thrive yes. in an economy and a world 
in which knowledge is expanding at a very rapid pace, in which we have gigantic, you know, problems that we haven't solved, uh, in which, you know, technology is uh, advancing, the technology knowledge is doubling every 11 months. Uh, so creating education for the common good means uh, not only an equitable approach to education, but one that is suited to the time that we're in, in which, you know, young people are going to be working with knowledge that's not discovered yet, using technologies that haven't been invented yet, that to solve major problems that we haven't managed to solve. They'll have to have uh, learning ability to be flexible and adaptable and collaborative uh, in this space uh, so that the common good can be really um, accomplished. Linda, then, when, when I hear you talk about this and, and the importance of the defining features of equality and empowerment, and yet I know you've recently done analytical work on what you call the anatomy of inequality. So what's the position of which we are coming in order to redesign? Yeah. Well, in the United States, we have, uh, you know, had historically a very unequal education system. Uh, partly that arose from the discrimination that accompanied uh, not only slavery for uh, African-Americans, but also uh, a variety of kinds of discrimination for other people of color in the country. Uh, but it also grew out of the fact that every local town had to create its own public education system and the local towns had different amounts of money. And while that was a good intention, it produced a very inequitably funded education system. Since about the 1980s, we've been uh, kind of regressing into greater uh, segregation and greater inequality uh, in, in the society, greater income inequality as well which is larger now than it has been since about 1929. So the anatomy of inequality, if you can kind of picture a triangle, starts with the degree of poverty and segregation that we have. Uh, most children in the United States in public school now qualify for free and reduced price lunch. Poverty is widespread. We have concentrations of poverty and segregation in schools that are more than 90% students of color in very low income communities that are growing uh, as well. On top of that, we layer unequal school funding systems, which typically in most states give more money for the education of the affluent than the education of the poor because of those disparate property uh, bases that the local districts rest on. That produces, uh, because we haven't invested in the profession of teaching, uh, uh, inequitable distribution of well-qualified educators, both teachers and school leaders, uh, which produces very different kinds of teaching and learning in schools. And those that have underprepared educators uh, in high need contexts with very little support, you yes. see a lower level uh, teaching and skill development. Uh, you see a lot of disparate disciplinary action uh, because teachers don't know how to support kids to be engaged in the classroom. You see also a lot of implicit bias that shapes the way in which families and children are treated. Um, and you see uh, usually a very unequitable curriculum. So that lack of access then to a high quality curriculum uh, with all of those other features results in dysfunctional schools. And we have to really deal with all of those layers 
of inequality if we're going to solve the problem. So if we then take the way forward, you uh, at your own institute have been talking about the, the restarting and the reinventing process at this very moment. And we all know what this moment is <laughs> and what the opportunities are. And you identify a number of the features or characteristics of that reinvention. And you go on to talk about, therefore, uh, an anatomy of equity. Can you just capture for us the essence of the shift, the elements of that shift, and what an anatomy of equity would look like? Sure. Um, well, the, the shift has to both equalize opportunity that includes sort of the wraparound uh, supports for children, healthcare, mental health care, social services, you know, that deal with the uh, food insecurity and housing insecurity and the variety of um, challenges that families face. Uh, so it has to rest on that in the education environment in addition to sort of a war on poverty that needs to be reactivated in this country. Uh, we can create community schools that are designed to wrap around these services and supports for children and adults. Um, it also uh, means equitably funding schools themselves so that those that serve higher need students get more money to do that, uh, to provide the smaller uh, class sizes and pupil teacher ratios as well as the resources for well-qualified educators. It means redesigning the system by which we both train uh, teachers and school leaders and make sure that they are made available to all of the um, schools that need them. Um, that training needs to take into account what we know now from the science of learning and development. Uh, we know now that uh, kids are not born, you know, smart, average, and dumb, you know, to be allocated across, you know, different tracking systems. The brain is malleable. Uh, we continually grow and learn. We learn and our brain develops, uh, our intelligences develop, our learning and achievement develop by the context that we're in. Uh, when children are in very uh, safe and secure environments psychologically, as well as physically, when they are in rich learning environments with lots of opportunities for inquiry, uh, for um, experimentation, investigation, collaboration, uh, and support and scaffolding, they learn uh, at much higher rates. Uh, when they're in environments where they're not being threatened by stereotype threat or by other kinds of trauma, uh, they learn at higher rates. Uh, and relationships are very, very central to that. When they're in environments where the relationships are strong, not only between and among adults and young people, so that we need to design relationship centered schools that allow for you know, that kind of close relationship over a long period of time, but also the relationships between and among families and schools so that everyone can partner in the support of children so that teachers can draw on the funds of knowledge in the community uh, and uh, from families to support kids and enable the connections that have to occur for learning to occur. And then the relationships among teachers so that they have time to collaborate with one another around a coherent design for curriculum and school practices and for problem solving around the needs of individual children. So all of those are elements of the redesign 
that we need to undertake that will build the anatomy of equity uh, that will ultimately also um, lead us to a much more um, relevant and rigorous curriculum for the 21st century, which is based on learning ability, developing the capacity of people to learn to learn throughout yep. their lives, uh, and the kinds of assessments that allow us, uh, on the one hand, to uh, have intellectually challenging work that is um, undertaken through projects and inquiries and examined through performance-based assessments that illustrate what people can actually do with the knowledge that they have, and that are also able to show us where kids are in their learning at a moment in time so that we can accelerate that learning uh, rather than you know, sort of teaching over their head or under their head or you know, to some mythical average that does not actually exist. Um, and then of course we need to support the kind of innovative practice uh, that uh, will have to be continually ongoing as we go through this you know, rapidly changing uh, world throughout the century. And that's gonna require a sort of governance uh, that allows for uh, equitable resources, well-trained, competent educators, and then flexibility for those educators to make decisions that can continually innovate uh, and meet the needs of students and society. Well, let, let me come to the governance of the whole system, the politics of education, and maybe the, the hope around a Biden administration agenda uh, on behalf of the entire country. Let me come to that in a moment, but just before I do, what you just described, and many of those features and elements are already present in a number of schools, and indeed in a number of high-performing states. So what is the distinction that you're making here between those bright spots all over the US, individual schools, networks, clusters of schools, some of the states that are very high-performing by all standards, national, international? What's the distinction you're making between that activity and what you're talking about in terms of the wider system uh, then demonstrating the anatomy of equity? So we know how to create innovative schools. We've created so many innovations. In fact, you know, people from other countries often say, you know, we go to the United States to see the innovations. We take them back home and we scale them up. That yeah. would be something someone from Singapore would say, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. they, they're masters at engineering the system to take the best knowledge and scale it up. We have not really tried to do that. In fact, I sometimes worry that we will innovate our way to failure because we have so much inequality in the system and we haven't designed it in a coherent way in most states so that it is built on uh, both an equity presumption and access and resources uh, and then strong professional knowledge to implement these good ideas uh, and then to do that for all kids in, in, their, in their schools across the state. So we do have a few states that have done that. Uh, Massachusetts in the early 1990s undertook a very holistic reform and became the number one achieving state in the nation. They 
uh, equalized and, and made their funding system more equitable. They put in place healthcare for children, preschool for children, training for teachers and school leaders, uh, a coherent vision for the kind of learning that they wanted to accomplish that got reflected in curriculum standards and more innovative assessments than most states were using. Uh, they Those things matter. And when you do them coherently, we've seen a number of states that have been able to accomplish uh, that kind of a goal. New Jersey more recently, um, also in the 90s, North Carolina, you could go through the examples that have been written about. But we don't typically do that across all of our states, and we don't typically do it across all of our districts, and we have lots of little innovative schools that live at the margin of the system, often in a hostile policy environment. Yep. So the hope for us right now is that in this administration, we do have a president who cares deeply about education, a first lady, Dr. Jill Biden, who is herself a teacher, uh, taught throughout uh, her time as second lady and intends to teach while she's first lady, cares deeply about education. They have a whole child vision. They understand the inequalities that have to be addressed. They also understand the kind of teaching and learning that we need to be able to develop. Uh, and they've already put forward a very ambitious agenda, uh, some of it in the American Rescue Act, which has all of the components uh, that we're talking about here um, in the Infrastructure Act and the Family uh, Act that is coming and in the first budget. Uh, everything from the foundational leverage to get states to pay attention to the right issues, to create what we know uh, works uh, to equalize uh, resources, as well as to uh, undertake uh, a process towards much more empowering education. Um, and we'll see uh, how that agenda plays out, but they've come out of the gate uh, roaring uh, yeah. with a build back better uh, agenda that has put already put more money into education for uh, a very integrated approach to uh, whole child learning and development, uh, and that is also um, building around that the healthcare and the anti-poverty uh, programs that are needed uh, will cut child poverty in half in this year with the agenda that's already been put in motion. Um, and so we have a shot at both supporting children and families much more productively, starting with preschool, adding two extra years to um, the preschool on-ramp, uh, two years of free college at the end that will also motivate uh, and uh, enable uh, young people to believe they can uh, reach for uh, higher education. And then the uh, infrastructure to leverage states uh, to do the right things uh, in the system. So it's a moment and we'll see whether it uh, uh, plays out, but I think we've got it off to a very good start. Well, Linda, uh, let me just acknowledge your leadership. Um, obviously, you've been uh, an enormous uh, supporter of uh, our own work, NCE, uh, and across, obviously, the US and internationally. Uh, you've guided us most recently uh, and supported us in work, as you say, in a number of states, including Maryland, where the redesign work has been effectively a focus for the last couple of years. So there's a real sense as you say, in multiple places, and with the politics of education uh, hospitable, yep, to the direction of travel that you're talking about. So I let me just finish by asking you, 
I do get the sense that there is a moment not only to seize here, but a moment of hope for going back to the very opening of this, a national system, an approach across the US that will render a learning system that's in the interests of all, for all young people and in the common good. You really do feel that moment of hopefulness I do feel that moment of hopefulness. Uh, now, you know, I am a short person and they say short people are more optimistic because when we look up, the glass looks half full as opposed to looking down at the glass that's half empty. But I am very hopeful that we will make um, substantial strides in that direction. Linda, thank you. And once again, uh, let me thank you for uh, the contribution that you have made over such a sustained period. But right now, the leadership is so vital. We all know that. And we thank you for joining us on Global Ed Talks. Linda Darling-Hammond. My pleasure.